Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A Texas death row inmate won a reprieve from the Supreme Court earlier this month, just three hours after the time he could have been executed. He was convicted of killing a convenience store worker during a 2004 robbery that got him just $1.25. John Henry Ramirez had filed a lawsuit in August claiming that the state was violating his religious freedom by not allowing his Baptist pastor to lay hands on him and pray for him as he was being given a lethal injection. His victim died a particularly brutal stabbing uh, during the three-day-long drug binge and multiple robberies carried out by Ramirez and two female acquaintances. His attorney had argued that the Texas rule against touching and praying during the execution process for the sake of safety and order denied his religious exercise at the precise moment when it was needed most, when someone is transitioning from this life to the next. In the Texas system, a spiritual advisor is allowed to be in the execution chamber, but touching or praying for an inmate is not allowed during the process for security concerns. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Is talking to God something that's only important when you're about to meet him in person? By looking at statistics about people's prayer lives, you might think so. For all the benefits the Bible promises about prayer, most Christians just don't do it that much. And it's not because he doesn't invite us to. Through the psalmist in Psalm 50, God says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. How do we call upon God? Well, we do it every time we pray. Prayer honors God. It shows that we trust and respect his unlimited power, his unlimited wisdom, and maybe most of all, his unlimited love. Prayer shows that a child of God actually believes that he or she has a personal relationship with the God who is here and the God who acts. Prayer is verbal confidence in the Lord's promise not just to, to watch his children from a distance, but to actually intervene in their lives. The church words for that are transcendent and imminent. A transcendent God is one who is God over all, has authority over all, all-powerful, omnipotent, all-knowing, omniscient, and another attribute that plugs in here, uh, omnipresent, present everywhere. Our God is not only transcendent, God overall, but he's also imminent, God with us. Or as we remind ourselves during the Advent Christmas season, Emmanuel, an attribute that's also a name, God with us, who became one of us when he was born into our world that first Christmas, uh, Jesus, the Christ. True God and true man, he experienced what we experience in this fallen world, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all its hurts all its losses, all its betrayals, but also all its celebrations, all its joys. He's a God who can relate. When that God, our God, invites us to pray, we should want to pour our hearts out to him. You know, how much must he love us with all our faults and our failings and our unfounded fears to come to him with our cares and concerns, our highs and lows, always there day and night, ready to listen? He has so much he wants to give us, if we'll only ask. Prayer is God's gift to his people to help them see themselves not as helpless prisoners of fate, but as active participants in how God directs his world. The Savior guarantees us access. The Father promises to listen, always. 
And the spirit promises to sort of fill in the gaps and make sure that that conversation with our loving God is the one call that will never drop. Maybe for some people, the thought of approaching the creator of the universe as a, a sinner in constant need of God's grace, you know, feels like it's just not for the faint of heart, despite his invitation to the contrary. So when they do pray, those prayers may sound, seem like they're a little weak or come out as uh, whispers. But God's got big ears. He hears every prayer that faith lifts in his direction, whether it originates from the lips or the heart or even the tears streaming down your cheek. And somehow you'll get an answer. So then why don't we do more of it? The average American spends 47 minutes a day on personal care activities, over five hours a day using their smartphones for one thing or another, an hour a day in the bathroom, three hours a day watching television. And yet the average believer spends just 10 minutes a day in prayer with the God of the universe. I hear you. I get what you're thinking. Well, looking at those statistics, who's got time, right? But he's your truest friend, the savior of the world, and by the way, the creator of time. That 10 minutes equates to less than six hours a month or just three days a year. And when those numbers suddenly shoot up, then we know it's probably because someone's in trouble. We all know that praying for the sick is something that we're asked to do from time to time. There's a list each week of people connected to our peace family here who have asked for our prayers. We put it in the bulletins on Sunday. We mail it out with the announcements on each Friday. And it's the job of the saints, okay, all of us, every believer, every church member, to pray for all kinds of needs and answers to those prayer requests. Now, our lesson from James this morning uh, talks about one particular kind of prayer, prayer for the sick, prayer for healing, prayer you might even pray at the bedside of others. Now, a lot of people might react to that by thinking, isn't that the pastor's job? Or maybe, you know, what, me pray for the sick? I'm no Oral Roberts. I'm actually old enough to remember watching Oral Roberts heal people on his television show. And Catherine Kuhlman. They were famous faith healers in the 50s. Even in elementary school, I used to listen to his healing crusades on the radio. And when he would get to the end, he would always say something like, okay, all you people at home listening, put your hand on the radio as I pray for you. Well, there wasn't anything wrong with me. It was a little kid. But sometimes I work up the dirt to put my hand on the radio just to see what might happen albeit apprehensively, to see if I could feel anything, maybe a little tingle of electricity. I never did. Just happy to have survived the exercise. <laughs> but I was never dissuaded from a fascination with, with the connection between prayer and miraculous healing. Now, his ministry wasn't without controversy or skepticism or accusations of fraud, including the opinion by the American Medical Association in the early 1960s that all faith and miracle healings are the result of one of three things, uh, the power of suggestion, wrong diagnosis, or really actual spontaneous healing. They worried that the people who uh, thought they were cured on stage would go home and stop taking their medications or stop seeing the doctors altogether. And that happened. Now, I'm neither endorsing nor ridiculing Oral Roberts' ministry this morning, Billy Graham once slipped into a Robert's crusade unnoticed and came away convinced that people were actually being healed. 
He and Roberts became friends, and Graham spoke at the opening of Oral Roberts University. But for most of us, it's something we just don't always understand. One thing is certain, though. The Bible is clear that we should pray for healing. So the question really isn't whether or not God answers prayer. He does. And the question isn't whether or not God answers prayers for the sick. He does. And the question isn't really whether or not God can heal, because we have over 40 different eyewitness accounts of Jesus healing people during his ministry. The focus of James this morning is on the role of the church in all this. Uh, what part do we play? How are we to respond to sickness in our midst? Except maybe in the case of Christian science or Jehovah Witnesses, which aren't you know, really Christian at all. Medicine and prayer for healing have never really been at odds with one another. Uh, faith and medicine have walked hand in hand for centuries. Religious groups have founded lots of hospitals. Uh, several studies have connected prayer with healing. But we have to remind ourselves, though, uh, in our own moments of medical despair, maybe, is that prayer doesn't always work like some sort of cosmic vending machine where you drop a coin in the top and a, and a miracle cure pops out the bottom. Nevertheless, God wants us to pray for the sick, and he wants the church to pray for their sick. So let's take a closer look at our lesson, our second lesson this morning from James. He offers a step-by-step -step process for what was, at this time, a fledgling Christian church on how to care for one another. Call for the elders, he says. From its earliest days, each congregation had several elders to help manage its affairs. James was one of them. Uh, the elders would uh, see to the... Uh, uh, management of everyday affairs. You know, they would see the teaching. They, they functioned a lot like our pastors do today. Um, they were usually older men with sufficient experience to be able to handle the task. And there was always more than one in each congregation. Now, we can't assume that every church elder was, you know, went to the bedside of every sick person. But when they did, well, we know that they prayed for that person. They went because many times that person was too sick to come to them. Or the person was too sick to pray for themselves. Or maybe uh, uh, because of illness itself or medications, uh, couldn't think coherently. Maybe they were just too depressed. When the elders arrive, let them pray over him, James says. See, prayer is the key function here. Prayer is what lifts that person and his or her needs before God. The elders aren't the healers. God is the healer. Sometimes miraculously, sometimes through medicine, but he's, he is the great physician through which all healing ultimately comes. Despite what you might you know, think about, about people in the past like Oral Roberts, um, he actually always emphasized that. The healing came from God. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil, James says. Now, back in the first century, oil was valued for its medicinal properties. A more literal translation might read, oil him with oil. Uh, he doesn't mean to touch just with a few drops ceremonially like some people think about when they think of last rites. It means to apply for functional purposes. And it probably would have been olive oil, not pennzoil. <laughs> Applying oil or anointing a sick person with oil wasn't a sacramental act. The Good Samaritan applied oil and, and wine to the beaten man's wounds and bruises. Herod the Great was bathed in a whole vessel filled with oil when, when it was uh, thought that he was about to die. Oil was used to alleviate fevers and other ailments. Ancient writers Pliny and Philo and the physician Galen praised the medicinal use of olive oil. We learn from James that in the case of the sick, oil was to be applied in the name of the Lord. 
Oil offered a person some symptomatic relief that may even have allowed them to, to uh, pray, but it was also symbolic of God's presence and the need for God's blessing. It told people that the church was concerned about the body as, as well as the soul. It didn't work any magic, but it wasn't expected to. Rather, it was a reminder that all healing must come from God. It said to the person, God is here to heal you. We're placing you in God's hands. And then James goes on to offer the, or, uh, uh, emphasize the value of prayer again. After the elders come and pray, after the oiling uh, in the name of the Lord, he assures us that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and God will raise him up. Now, there's an unusual phrase there that's usually used only here in the New Testament, the prayer of faith. In one sense, every prayer has to be offered in faith, or it really wouldn't be a prayer at all, would it? When you pray for healing, you're coming to God with an attitude of complete trust that he can and will do whatever is most needed in every situation. A prayer offered in faith isn't some sort of magic charm that guarantees recovery, and the elders weren't a committee of faith healers nor are they miracle workers, nor are they expected to be. But a prayer offered in faith, that faith itself being a gift of God, is a very special privilege that places the ailing person into God's able hands, confident that his gracious will might be done. Again, it's the Lord who raises up the patient to recovery, to renewed health and strength. The elders don't stick their fingers in a patient's ear uh, when they have a hearing, to, you know, an earache or, or slap them on the forehead to cure a headache and then tell them to, come on, get out of bed and walk. That's the reason we, we don't avoid continuing medical care. Like faith, medicine is also a gift from God. Now, James doesn't say anything about how healing will come. He, just, he doesn't say to expect a miraculous or instantaneous healing. Uh, he doesn't say uh, you should rule out medical care. But quickly or slowly, by miracle or medicine or maybe a combination of the two, God is able to heal his children. Now, I don't know if you caught it when the lesson was read, but why do you suppose James threw in, threw in this part here about confession? Remember what it said? He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Right in the middle of all these prayers about God or about healing with prayer. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Complete healing is an issue of body, mind, and soul. Someone has said healing in the Bible is not becoming what we were, but becoming all that God intends us to be. When you pray for healing, don't focus on the physical to the exclusion of the spiritual, emotional, or even the relational aspects of life. We're not fully healed until we're made whole on every level of our existence. And if the patient is in need of confession, it might be an opportunity for them to unburden themselves and hear the sweet assurance of God's uh, complete and unconditional forgiveness. He won't withhold healing and recovery because of sins committed in the past. Once they're forgiven, they're forgotten. In fact, the way it's used here in James, it's more like confession is something that we should keep on doing continually. And James doesn't say only confess until the elder who stops by. I think he's saying, you know, don't wait until you're sick to think about getting right with God. Repentance, confession, and forgiveness, that's a way of life for the believer. No matter how hard we work at it, we're never going to achieve perfection in this life. God has provided a way, though, through prayers of faith and his word, his sacraments, 
to be released from the burden of sin and restored. If you're a believer, you're a child of God. Make the best use of that relationship by continual conversation with God, not only through confession, but with thanksgiving and praise for all your blessings. Think of confession as soul healing. Now, does it have to be to a pastor? Not according to James. You know, confess your sins to one another, he says, and and pray for one another. If you have a trusted Christian friend and you're weighed down by something, something that's sickening your soul, can you confess that sin to that brother or sister? Will the absolution they promised to you, or they pronounced to you, will that be legitimate? The assurance that by your faith in Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection for you, all those sins have been forgiven by God. James says yes. And I agree, although not everyone in our church body would probably agree with me. But because it's not your Christian brother or Christian sister who's actually forgiving you, only God can forgive sins. Surely they can assure you of Christ's forgiveness if you're truly repentant and trust in Jesus' merit and not your own for God's grace. That's the gospel. Remember, too, that everyone we pray for is going to be healed in God's way and in God's time, even if that healing comes in the next world. I don't have any good answer for that, except that uh, it's all in God's hands. So pray for the sick, right? Pray for the suffering. Pray for the hurting. Pray aggressively, because nothing is impossible with God. Pray passionately, because James says the prayers of the righteous are powerful. And pray that God's will be done because only he knows the joys that await us beyond the veil of this life. Because God's understanding of the total situation is so much greater than ours could ever be. You know, if it were always God's will to heal physically, then no one would ever die. Physical healing may not always be in God's plan for us. But spiritual healing, that's right at the top of the list. Always and for everyone. Spiritual healing results in the kind of healing where one day... We'll live in a place where God himself will wipe away every tear, where there's no more sickness or sorrow forever. Prayer for a person in in need is the most powerful tool in a Christian's arsenal, but sadly, it often goes unused in favor of a card, maybe, or flowers. So remember it and use it. It's God's gift, and it can work miracles. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. We'll take a moment now to receive